Hello all, this is Blonde Haired Girl. So my son is, he's a senior in high school and he's taking this calculus class. I was like, you know, son, like what is calculus? And so he's, he's sitting there and he's trying to describe it to me. You know, a calculus as opposed to like algebra or geometry or, you know, as in some category of math that in my childhood would I would have believed that I could have never learned but over the years he and I have had the most interesting conversations I remember when he was in middle school he had this really amazing uh, professor I mean teacher and one day he hopped in the car and he said well that's it mom and I'm like well what's it and he's like I'm going to be a chemist because he loved chemistry so much. So this was a very compelling teacher. And over the years, he's just really excelled in, in the sciences. And he's taken um, uh, chemistry and he took biology. He wasn't as crazy about biology as he is like chemistry and he's taken physics, you know, geometry, and now he's into um, calculus. <laughs> and so, and so like sometimes he and I would have these like really deep conversations about things. Like I'd ask him, you know, so son, do you think, do you think that we're creating math or, or are we discovering it? Like, it just seems like things just keep getting more and more and more sophisticated. Now, I could be wrong, maybe I'm wrong, but I don't know, maybe with, with computers, um, that math, or the discovery of math has just, you know, like when I was growing up, like a million dollars was a lot of money, but now it's like billions. And then like, like the US is like trillions of dollars in debt. <laughs> trillions of dollars even that concept is just really weird to me like where exactly does money come from it's like a piece of paper and they just print it like can't isn't there just an unlimited amount of of money that we can actually print or are we indeed like are we borrowing money from another country like I just don't understand how it all works I'm just gonna say that but um so there is a lot of debate right now that I've noticed between like people in the in the communities that are that are thoughtful like I don't know how to describe this exactly well like let's just put it on to like like a fundamentalist Christian believing in creation versus evolution. So they actually believe that the book of Genesis in the Bible is to be taken literally and that the earth is only 7,000 years old. And and they they some people accuse them of being anti-science. And and then and then like like currently, like what's happening with this COVID 
um, vaccine or and even the COVID itself, there's been a lot of, of people that have been accusatory that people who would question what exactly this, this virus is and them like, like not believing in the science, like anybody who would question this or question the vaccine as if they don't believe in science, like science has, has proven this, this case that this is indeed, they have isolated the gene or, you know, this, um, they've isolated the virus and, and then they created this vaccine and, and it's all science. You just have to trust the science. And I am very suspicious of that. <laughs> I'm very suspicious of that. And, and the irony of this is, for me personally, is that I absolutely love science. Like, I love space. I love, like, I just went out to go get something out of my car and I looked up in the moon. Like, I'm, I'm just like, oh my God, the moon. It just looks so amazing tonight. And, and I, and I just... And I've been very scientific for many years like in my work because I worked with uh, young children who were not talking. Like primarily they weren't talking and I'm just going to stay with that one. I mean, I was working on all the areas of development, but let's just like talk about young, young children like birth to three years old that we're not talking and so I spent a lot of time on the on the floor playing with children watching them trying to figure out what worked and what didn't work and I had to really be on my on my feet because as most people know young children really don't have very much of an attention span I'm not saying whether they should or they shouldn't but a lot of times they're just very busy and <laughs> and so if you don't engage them and you don't keep them engaged you're you're going to lose them and then you're not going to be able to uh engage them in in you know in identifying things or whatever you're trying to do with a child to build their their vocabulary and so i had to like really be be paying attention and so I kind of saw myself as a scientist and then like I would I would get these snidbits of information you know like I, I read this study once that was talking about that the brains of children who were raised in poverty were smaller than the brains of children that were not raised in poverty and and I and I just was like and so I always kind of, I'm like, okay, does that ring true? You know, and, and they claimed that they had done all these MRIs on these children. So they knew, you know, they had done these studies and the studies had shown, you know, well, I had been a part of a learning community, a school that was a pretty poor school, like as, 
you know, in the town that I live in, these were children that that you would not say were from affluent households. These are, are going to be children who are going to be in a fairly, I would say, poverty. And, but I, I noticed that these children were incredibly intelligent. And, and one of the things that I started to really think about was that these parents may not have very much money, but they were more likely to spend a higher percentage of their income on food on special food, on organic food, on fruits and vegetables. Like these are going to be the parents who are going to be really conscientious about what they feed their children, what their children are watching, like like making sure that they don't have screen time when they're very young. I mean, there were all these different factors that went into it besides just poverty. And so I and I've been doing okay so then and then like in another situation where I started to notice that people you know including myself like I would get in these relationships with people and I would spend years on the fence like should I stay or should I leave should I stay or should I leave and I was really heavily tortured by this Um, And it just felt so inauthentic to me to stay with someone that I wasn't entirely sure that I was in it for the long haul. Like I, you know, one foot in and one foot out. I didn't think it was really fair to the person I was in the relationship with either for me to feel this way. And so I... (laughs) And so I started to notice like this pattern. It's like... Why do we do this? Why do we stay in relationships with people who, you know, we are not happy with for one reason or another? And I'm not even going to get into why we're unhappy, but we're not happy. So why do we stay with these people? And, and I started to like really think, God, you know, there is some factor in it. There is there is some payoff, there is some like chemical reaction that we are not privy to. And and I think that it had, you know, and I was starting to kind of discover that it had something to do with, with these, that we had been conditioned. And, and that we, we, like these accolades and these punishments, like, like from, from, the person that we love, like they, you know, and, and somehow like one compliment and it was just enough to satisfy for at least a period of time. Um, but anyway, <laughs> so currently Lee, I'm just trying to establish that I've just, this has just been the way my brain works. I mean, I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm like, if I'm, t- I, I actually identify with philosophy I sort of feel like I'm a philosopher. And so philosophers are very scientific and we are like thinking about stuff all the time. Like we're observing, we're observing 
something and then we're like what is that and and sort of dissecting it and trying to figure it out and so I'm not the kind of person that is going to just you know like my doctor says that it's this is what I should do and so I'm just going to do that just because my doctor tells me that's what I should do I'm not the kind of person that would ever be like that and so like like I remember when the Gardasil which is a um an HPV vaccine that it came out and they were really pushing it for teenage girls and my daughter was around the age where um where I should or could have given her this vaccine and I really I really I didn't give it to her I I didn't trust it so I'm going to say there are times where I don't trust the science and so I got to thinking about this and I really I actually got to talking to someone about this because because I can I can see it looking like like I wouldn't be using my my higher thinking skills by not trusting the su- supposed scientists but but I I I really I think that there is a difference between the motivation of whatever the science is so so if like I think in the beginning when the man developed you know I think it was penicillin maybe um when penicillin was developed and and I don't know the the history behind it but I really don't I'm just gonna say I don't really know the history behind that but I like to believe that there are some scientists who are actually looking out for the good of humanity. But there's a number of people who are forced into coming up with with scientific results for the good of the profit factor in an organization like a drug, a pharmaceutical company. So I remember when I, I was in graduate school, I had gone back to school and I, I had to pass the statistics. I wasn't going to be able to get my degree without passing statistics. And quite frankly, it was quite ominous for me. These, as a philosopher, when somebody puts a formula in front of you and they say okay here just just work the problem but I don't know what the problem is about I don't know what you know what is this problem about why am I putting this number in but I found that that some of these scientists these sciences you just put a number in and then it burps out an answer and you hope you get the right answer 
And I found statistics to be very much like that. But anyway, and so my professor, I will never forget this. I mean, this professor really shedded light on the idea that science is oftentimes adjusted based on who's asked for the science. So you have all of these universities or these hospitals and these grants get funded to to study a certain like even say vaccine I'm going to use that in this in this particular circumstance. And there is a lot of money on the line here. So so they do this scientific study and they come out and they come back with these results that even say, you know, one in a thousand people who get this vaccine are going, you know, didn't fare well. And and the and the vaccine company doesn't like that result. So they ask this this scientist to change the results. And so you say, you know, oh no, scientists wouldn't do that. Well, what if they threaten them? What if they threaten their job? Or what if they offer them, like, like say they offer that, okay, we'll give you $200,000. We'll give you $200,000 if you change the result on that test. And it's like, we like to think that we're really principled, but honestly, So I would say that I really, I do believe in science and I love science. And, you know, I had done this, um, this, this entire uh, podcast on Bill Gates. I had watched his, uh, this documentary on him. So I watched this documentary on Bill Gates, and then it's not that soon after I watched this documentary that I find out a lot of really awful things about his intentions. And and I had I had been talking about his his vaccination program and trying to eradicate eradicate and I think it may have been malaria but I could be wrong I don't remember but it sort of depends on what the intentions are and and what I've discovered about Bill the Bill Gates and Melinda Gates Foundation is that a lot of times they really have been doing these tests like in other countries such as like I heard that in particular the Gardasil vaccination was rolled out in India and that and that these these the Indian government had thrown the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation out. So and so it turns out, you know, that he has like a, a crap load of money 
you know, to be had with these vaccinations. And also, I just don't, I guess he did some TED talk about depopulation, you know, like this theory that there's too many people on the planet. So, so, and then, like, this idea also, like, I, I really want to get into this, this idea of, of these seeds of this Monsanto. I, I've been, I've been talking, or I have thought about organics for many years. I mean, I remember, like, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, I was, I was interested in, like, what was happening with organic, like with food in general, and its health, and I just had the weirdest feeling about it all. And, and at the time, we actually lived in, in, a, in an orange orchard. And I had this impression, like, and y'all, I, a lot of, like, I get these impressions about things, and I cannot tell you that it's absolutely true, but I had this this impression that there were a lot of pesticides in the soil because it was an orange orchard and the farmers theoretically they don't want to lose their crops and anybody who has tried to grow things understands that pests are a problem and they can knock out an entire crop you can have a really bad orange year but my son was later diagnosed autistic. And I had often wondered if it had something to do with being in that orchard. And it turned out that I had this friend who they had a child in approximately the same like area of town. And I had often wondered about doing the science and finding out if there were clusters of children who had actually had that diagnosis in that area. So then there's this other, other issue with systemic pesticides. So what they started to do was, and I don't know if it's Monsanto, but I'm guessing that it probably was. So Monsanto develops these, these seeds and, you know, these are fabulous seeds and they have a pesticide in them, intrinsic in them. So you don't have to spray them. It's, it's like the, the plant and the, are the plants are pest free because they have some kind of poison in them and what ended up happening was large hives of bees just dropped dead I mean just millions of bees and these beekeepers who made their living on these bees were losing their beehives and it was it was actually really sad and there was a lot of fear about the pollinization of plants because Bees are integral in our crops and our food. <laughs> and so, like some would say, you know, that science was able to 
you know, the greatness of science is that we now have a seedless watermelon. Isn't that fantastic? We don't have to fish out the seeds of our watermelons anymore. Because we have somehow created a, a watermelon without seeds. Now we have like a personal watermelon, like these like perfectly round, you know, personal size seedless watermelons who have been genetically modified. And, and then you, you look at, at the, you know, one thing that Bush did was he tried to get this ethanol infrastructure going. And so they subsidized all these crops, these, these, these corn crops in like places like Iowa. And my friend grew up there and she, she like, when she was growing up, it was like, when you saw GMO, that was a good thing. Oh my God, these are GMO corn. But the other thing that started happening with this is that they started feeding cows the corn. And cows are not supposed to eat corn and doing all kinds of other stuff with this corn that's not even really edible. And this whole, this whole idea of the ethanol, ethanol infrastructure was a complete bomb. And so now they have all this corn that is really not good for anyone. <laughs> so I used to have the opportunity to go to this farm in, in Maine. And I remember I, I was always reading books back then. <laughs> I don't read as much as I used to. So I had read this book that that was really one of the best books I've ever read in my life. And I actually have to buy it again because I have this habit of giving my books away and I gave it away. I'm like, oh God, why did I do that? Anyway, and it was called The Omnivore's Dilemma. And it, and it was written by a guy named Michael Pollan. And, and this book was so pertinent to me because not only was I interested in food and non-GMO and, and, um, I was also interested in vegetarianism. I, I had decided at one point in my life that I really didn't want to eat meat. So most of my life I have been a vegetarian. Now I do eat eggs every once in a while. I'll have fish. Um, Although I have this thing about fish and mercury and them, you know, it's like, I'm sorry, I'm a little all out all over the place, but it's all very, very pertinent. Like, um, my friends who shop at Walmart for their groceries and, you know, you go and you can get a piece of salmon there for, you know, cheap, man, look at this salmon. It's so cheap. Well, yeah, it was farmed. These salmon were kept in these cages and they weren't allowed to swim freely and they and they were sitting in their own feces and excrement and it's just bad fish bad fish you don't want to eat fish that is farmed any fish that's farmed 
<clears throat> but anyway, so I go, I go to Maine and, and this book is like really, really a pertinent book for me. And he, he was a reporter and he ended up doing a lot of research and, and he was giving us an idea of this idea, idea of, um, organics and if organics really was a thing, like, are we really paying and are they really organic or are we just paying extra for the same thing? Which actually came to kind of ring true. Like the expectations were just kind of silly, like, you know, cage free, you know, but the size of the cage is, I'm just using this as an example. I don't know if this is true, but like the size of the cage is just bigger. So they call it cage free somehow. Or, um, you know, they, basically he just wanted to find out if it was worth it for us to be paying extra money for our food. And, and the most interesting thing about the book for me personally was he had, he had followed this calf. So he follows this calf from birth to slaughter. And in the process of doing that, he's investigating all of these farms. And there was this one farm, I think it was in Virginia, I could be wrong. And this guy would not him call himself an organic farmer because he even went further in his practices. And he would split up his his um farm into four sections because it was very important that the cows not take more than one bite. It was something about the integrity of the grass and that if they if they took too much they could like mess up the grass. So this guy split up his property into four sections okay and and so he would put his cat his cows on like this section and then the next day it would be on the second section and then the next day the third section and then the next day the fourth section well the other thing he did that was really fascinating was he made a rolling chicken coop because ch chickens are natural scratchers so he would he would have the chicken so he would have the cows go in this section of of the farm and then and then he would move the cows and then then he would put his his chickens out and they would scratch you know into where the cows had been the day before and then he would just keep he would move the cows, then move the chickens, move the cows, then move the chickens. And so he had really just developed this whole system. So Michael Pollan had decided that he, if he was going to eat chicken, that he was going to have to be willing to kill it. It was this, it really was this question of, of our culpability, I think, you know, it's been a while since I actually read the book, but something about our culpability, if we are not willing to 
to kill the animals. So he did indeed slaughter some chickens. And so the way he described it seemed like the most um, humane way to actually kill a chicken. And it, it had something to do with like, like cutting them and like bleeding them somehow. And then, and it wasn't that fast before the animal was dead and then the feathers were off and then they would call this this special day like chicken day or something and individual families and also restaurants would come by this farm to pick up their fresh chickens I mean you could not buy a more fresh chicken <clears throat> so he also followed his cow so what what ended up happening with his cow was he he had learned during this process that cows should not eat corn. They're supposed to eat grass. They're not supposed to eat corn. And I know this is a side, but I have to throw this in right now. I had watched a a some kind of mini document documentary about a cardiologist, I mean, this could have all been fictional, but I took it as truth, um, who had done a number of surgeries. And he said, it's not dairy, it's grass-fed. You, you have to buy grass-fed cheese, grass-fed milk, and grass-fed um, butter. If you're going to eat any of those things you it needs to be grass fed not um not corn fed because corn and, and Michael Pollan had totally talked about this in his book he had talked about the the um that his cow what they would do is at the very end of their life they would fatten them up and they would feed them all this corn and he said he did go to see his cow he didn't get to go to the slaughterhouse with him but he did get to see his cow and he said he didn't look good that his eyes were all bloodshot and he just the cow did not look good and so that is why this is part of the reason why for years I have been buying chicken and beef for my children at the farmer's market because I believe that the chickens are happier. I mean, they're not necessarily happy to die, but they have a happier life on these smaller farms and like, and especially the cows and, um, I don't eat beef, but my children do. And I do not, I don't tell them that they can't have beef because I don't eat beef. So now I, so I'm on to, on to food and science. So, so I am, I really, really do believe in science, but I also believe that there is an intentionality behind it. And, and I've really especially in if you look at the industries in the world 
I mean, let's just say in the U.S. I don't know what's going on in the world. I don't know why I always say that. Um, but in the U.S., the industries that are like really, really typically do well are like medical. So it's like there is this whole business behind illness. Like my daughter and I today, <laughs> we were talking because she has been like plagued with these canker sores. She's had them since she was really young. So did I. I used to have the worst canker sores ever. And, and I said, and I was like, you know, they don't have a, a, a cure for herpes. They don't. And we were laughing so hard. We were like, yeah, they're trying to find this, you know, this stuff for COVID. But we've had, you know, years and years and years of having to deal with the herpes uh, virus, which is a horrible virus, actually. I mean, it causes chicken pox. And then in adults, it causes shingles, which are a horrible thing. I've actually had them on the left side of my face. Um, right around my eye, going down to my upper lip. <laughs> I'm laughing. I kind of looked like the Phantom of the Opera. <laughs> I don't think I kept any pictures from that, but it was not pretty. But anyway, <laughs> so we were making these jokes about but you know, it's like they don't want to cure some of this stuff because they make a whole lot of money. I mean, they really do. And so there you have it. I mean, I I absolutely love science. But I also feel like it does matter the consciousness of the person who is asking for the science what their motivations are and and I don't know what the motivation is exactly on this this virus this virus that we're in right now I've never seen anything like it in in my particular lifetime I've never seen anything like it with the exception, you know, some people have been like bringing up this idea of AIDS, you know, and, and I remember, I kind of remember AIDS. I remember it being really scary and not knowing, you know, if somebody was contagious and it was a really horrible disease and people are living a lot longer with AIDS um, because of science but, um, it's like, how did I get on this topic? Oh, because I was saying that I haven't seen anything quite like this, this with this COVID. And, and today I was, I, I had told you all about this TikToker that I listen to every day and he gives the news and he was saying that, that companies can make it compensatory that you cannot work at that place if you do not get the vaccine, which is going to be kind of problematic. 
And then on top of that, I heard today that that it is morphed already. And I had talked about that, you know, that this is what always happens. You know, by the time the vaccine comes out, it's morphed into something else. And I don't know what all the solutions are, except I just, except to just try to be happy. To just try to be happy. And so here I am in my, in my snobby, you know, ingredients person where I don't just buy a cake mix, you know, and I don't just buy eggs. I get, you know, free range eggs. A lot of times I had been buying my eggs from the farm. I had bought them at this certain place in the town I live in. And in fact, I had I had gone in. I haven't gone in in months because I was really upset because in the beginning they were forcing me to wear a mask, and now I, you know, I wear a mask. I went into to um, uh, Sprouts today, and I'm with them, and I just wore a mask. So I may go tomorrow and get some of my farm fresh eggs, um, and my honey at my honey man. <laughs> But people have sort of made made fun of me. Like my family has made fun of me, not my children, but my extended family has made fun of me because they've been like, you know, because I would always say a happy hen makes a happy egg. <laughs> they just, they couldn't stand me for saying stuff like that. But I really think that it does matter. It so matters. Like... It matters if the person who is baking the cake is making this meal out of love or somebody who like has this intentionality over baking the cake with anger and resentment. It's going to have a different flavor. Like Thanksgiving, my children came over for brunch. I always do brunch on Thanksgiving because... You know, there's just too much turkey. And we're all sitting around, and they are just, oh, my God. Oh, my God, this is so good. I had made, like, a frittata, and um, I can't remember what else. But uh, when I made a um, pumpkin pie, I think it was one of the best pumpkin pies I've ever made. And I actually, like, buy the pumpkin, and I bake the pumpkin so it's not out of a can. (laughs) I'm just a snob. I really am. And it's, like, sacrilege in our house to, like, cheat. Like, I never buy, like, whipped cream. I always get cream and whip it. (laughs) But anyway, I just wanted to uh, talk about this science thing because... What I, what I just have noticed over the years of, you know, being a skeptical person is that people have really equated my skepticism with stupidity. And I've been called a lot of things, you know, like I'm a moron and this and that, but I actually think it's quite the opposite and the fact that at least I... I think about something, you know, like if somebody tells you to jump off a bridge, do you just jump? The doctor told you, you know, 
his thinking about <laughs> the doctor, the stuff that doctors have told me to do. And, and I'm not saying that I don't trust doctors. I, I had to get my appendix removed. <laughs> um, yeah, I'm running out of out of body parts that I can live without. Um, but I, you know, so I did, I had appendicitis to have my appendix removed. Anyway, I'm going to go, I'm rambling. I appreciate y'all listening and I will be back with other ideas. And that's a wrap.